Um, just really appreciate Liz, but also Justin and Darren, who were willing to share uh, parts of their stories with us, right? As we've been in this conversation called Integrity, it's been great to hear from them some of the ways that they're processing these, these things, these big ideas that we've been talking about here uh, on Sunday morning. So thank you guys for sharing your story. Uh, and that does lead us into today's conversation. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3. And we're going to be flipping around the, the gospel of John this morning. So we're going to start there and then see where it goes. Um, and as you're looking that up, uh, let me just introduce myself. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are interested in baptism, you want to email me, apparently. And we can have a chat about that. I really look forward to next Sunday when we, when we have this opportunity to, uh, to celebrate that with people in our community. So keep that in mind. Um, again, as you're looking up John chapter 3, a couple of other things that I just wanted to, to sort of say and name as we get started this morning. Uh, it's November 13th, which is kind of crazy to me. I do not know how we got to almost Thanksgiving so quickly, but this has been a really great fall here at Discovery. Uh, we've launched our internship program, which you can support with the purchase of those uh, shirts and sweatshirts, and that's been a really sweet thing to see that uh, get off the ground. They've been doing a wonderful job. We've started Neighborhood Communities, which is our new sort of version of community midweek mid life here at Discovery. And they've been doing uh, fantastic and already coming up with, with um, beautiful and creative expressions of community rooted in neighborhoods here uh, in Davis and beyond, right, with our, with our Solano group as well. A couple weeks ago, we had Serve Sunday, and we did it a little bit differently this time. We did it through our neighborhood communities, and again, just really beautiful to see the different expressions of service uh, played out in those different spaces. And then last week, uh, Antonio was sick, and Steve was on vacation, and Scott just stepped in at the very last minute to teach. And it's just a, a, an encouragement to me to know that we have people who are able and willing, um, even at the very last minute, to step in and, and lead our community in that way. So all of that brings us to this morning as we wrap up this conversation, uh, our big fall conversation, which we've been calling Integrity. A couple of reminders uh, about what we've been uh, dialoguing about here. We tend to think of Integrity... As this moral thing, right? Someone who has integrity is a person who, who acts in a morally positive way. But we've been arguing that, that actually integrity is, is much more in line with just the very basic, simple dictionary definition, right? To be whole and undivided. Integrity, to be whole and undivided. Well, the morality piece is not necessarily wrong. We've been arguing that it is a thin understanding of integrity as compared to the thick teaching of Jesus, right? Who invites us to love God with all that we have, holy and undivided, right? Love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and with all of our mind and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not just us and God, but it's this, this reality that gets played out with people. At the core of integrity, we've been arguing, is this idea of generosity, Right? That to be a person of integrity, to grow in wholeness and to be undivided is actually to give ourselves away. This quote from Erwin McManus. Wholeness is not found through receiving but through giving. Wholeness and generosity are inseparably linked. 
paradoxically, we become whole as we give ourselves away. So for the integrity, by using our time, our treasure, and our talent as expressions of love for God and neighbor. And today we, we land the plane. We're going to continue talking about uh, this idea of talent. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And, and as we've already been, been singing and thinking, we come to the truth that you are already here. We don't come to church on Sunday morning to have a spiritual experience. We come, we gather together to celebrate who you are and what you are doing. And so would you just raise that awareness in us of your presence with us? That you are already here, you are already working and moving May we be tuned into that today as we finish this conversation. Would you continue to challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged? And encourage us and be gentle to us in the ways that we need that as well. We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 3. There was a Pharisee, this is verse 1, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. We're going to spend some time this morning with this guy named Nicodemus. He's a really interesting person, an interesting character. And John, the author of this version of the Jesus story, uses him in some very subtle but very interesting and important ways to embody the central themes of this book, this telling of the life of Jesus. John structures his gospel in a very different way, a very unique way. The first half of the gospel is built around seven signs that Jesus does. And those seven signs are meant to point us towards belief. This is the key word that John uses throughout the gospel, sign and belief. The word belief is used 98 times in the book, and it is the Greek word pistuo. This word pistuo is not just about intellectual agreements, right? Going, oh yes, <clears throat> two plus two is four, I agree with that. It has much more to do with a relational confidence, that you have had some experience uh, with something or with someone, and that experience grows this confidence you have in that person. Guys, my Golden State Warriors are not off to a great start this year. All right, they, don't, don't awe me. They just won the championship, all right, so it's okay. Um, but they're off to a bad start, and, and many people in Warriors land are like freaking out. Oh my gosh, we just won the championship, we're terrible, it's over, the dynasty, blah, blah, blah. You know, freaking out. And uh, maybe I'm just a more mature fan. <laughs> but, but I kind of sit there and I go, guys, like, chill. First of all, it's only 10 games into the season. And then second of all, we have Steph Curry. And we have all these other good players and great coaching staff. And all this stuff is lined up for us to do all. It's going to be okay. I have Pistuo and Steph. And so there we go. There we go. And so I know that it's going to be okay. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is a really interesting fact, right? Comes to Jesus at night. Why does he come to Jesus at night? It's because he is 
afraid. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's intrigued by Jesus. Right? He's been doing things, he's been saying things, he's been doing these signs. He wants to know more, but does not want to be exposed because of his role as a Pharisee, which was a spiritual leader and authority in the Jewish community at that time. So he goes to Jesus at night and he asks him, hey, what's going on with you? You've been doing all this stuff. What's the deal? And Jesus gives him, I think, way more than he bargained for. If you have an opportunity to actually sit down and read through John chapter 3, Jesus drops like some major ideas here, this is, of course, where we get the very famous verse, John 3.16. But there's stuff in here about the spirit and about how much God loves the world and what it means to be born again. This is where we get the phrase born again is this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, is taking this all in and he is amazed multiple times throughout the interaction. He says, how can this be? How can this be? And one of the things that's interesting about the interaction is that uh, Nicodemus is amazed, right? He's having a hard time wrapping his mind around these truths. And then Jesus goes on this very long speech and then it just ends. And it's like scene shift, move on to something else. And we're kind of like, what did this guy do with all of this information that Jesus just dropped on him? A couple chapters later, though, Nicodemus reappears. So if you are still following along, uh, flip over to John chapter 7. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus has continued to do signs. He's continued to teach. He's stirring up trouble and creating controversy. And so some of the other Pharisees send some guards to go get him and bring him in. Here, here's how this scene ends. We're in verse 45 of chapter 7. The temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? They, they come, they're supposed to get Jesus. They come back with no Jesus. Where is he? And they go, dude. It's in the Greek. Dude, no one talks like this guy. Right? No one has ever spoken the way that this man does. And the Pharisees go, oh, you mean that he's deceived you too? How, uh, and then they go on to say, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? And this is like one of those like teaser moments, right? Because we're like, yeah, we know of one. But this is their rhetorical question, right? Nobody, nobody actually buys what this guy is saying. This mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. And then look, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked... Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Now, that may not seem like much, right? Kind of, a, kind of an innocent-sounding question, but this is a very bold move. This is a very bold move to speak up in this way in the face of nearly unanimous opposition to Jesus by his peers is a very courageous thing to do. Hey, well, let's hear this guy out. Let's at least give him the opportunity to to, you know, tell us what he's up to and what's going on here. This might not seem like much on the surface of it, but, but I think John wants us to see the progression, right? Afraid, in the dark, coming to Jesus in the sneakiest way possible to now sort of sticking his neck out a little bit. Right? Taking a big risk here. Nicodemus, growing in confidence, growing in pistuo, faith, belief. 
Now, the conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders, it continues to grow and escalate. And, of course, it ultimately leads to Jesus' death, his trial, and his death on a cross. Skip now to John 19. This is, this is very close to the end of the story. Who's there at the end? This is interesting to see. John 19, verse 38, later, this is after Jesus has died, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, he laid Jesus there. Now again, <clears throat> this may not seem like a huge deal. But this is extravagantly generous and dangerously public. At, right at the moment when it was easiest to give up, certainly it was for the rest of the disciples who had bailed and run away, Nicodemus is the one burying Jesus. The one burying Jesus. So here we go. In this final scene, we see the full progression of Nicodemus. Right, from coming at night, uh, sort of sneaking around, trying to find out more about who this is, to starting to sort of publicly, you know, hey, maybe we should give him a little bit of time and see what he has to say, to then at the very end of the story, being the one to say, <clears throat> I'll take his body. I'll take his body and I'll bury it. And not only will I do that, but I am going to give this incredible amount of stuff to give him a proper burial. Pretty amazing to see the progression of Nicodemus through the Gospel of John. Now, here's the thing that, that, that I really want us to see. This is the thing that I love about Nicodemus is that he does this amazing thing, right? And we see this progression throughout his life, and yet he's still a Pharisee. Who are oftentimes, and, and for probably some good reasons, cast as the bad guys in the story. But he stays a Pharisee. Right? He, he doesn't drop everything and, and, and quit his job and, and move to a far-off country. He doesn't launch a brand or a ministry or go plant a church or any of these kinds of things. Those are all good and needed things. But what Nicodemus does is just faithfully do the next thing in the place that he already is. We need people to go to far-off countries and to plant churches and to start ministries and all of those sorts of things. But what we also need are normal people leading lives of radical integrity. We need teachers and doctors and parents and neighbors and volunteers who love Jesus and who follow God in their normal, everyday lives with radical Integrity. This can be a hard thing for us to imagine in our, in our cultural moment because we are so drawn to 
the spectacular. That if, if the thing doesn't, doesn't wow us, we, uh, uh, we question whether or not it can be effective. Whether or not it's meaningful or impactful. If it's not big and on a huge scale, we wonder, is this, what does this mean, right? We, we need to reimagine what it looks like to be an ordinary radical. Erwin McManus, who we've been uh, quoting often at the beginning of this conversation, uh, he's a pastor of a church called Mosaic. It's a church in Southern California, and it, is, uh, it has grown significantly over the last 20 years. Um, and he's become a very influential person, right? Speaks at conferences, writes books, um, has a podcast. I mean, all those kinds of things. In many ways, kind of fits the profile of a celebrity pastor. He was still a pastor, but he was the pastor of a church in Dallas, in inner city Dallas, a church that was about 15 to 20 people on a good Sunday. If you've ever heard him speak, you know that he's one of the most gifted communicators of our generation. But in his 30s, he preached to a dozen people every Sunday. What I see is, and I see this in myself, I see this in so many of us, a lot of us, we want to be Irwin now, right? Famous, well-known, admired, influential, but we don't want to be Irwin in his 30s. Hidden and unknown, ordinary. Integrity does not equal talent. Integrity does not equal influence or platform or correspond to how many followers you have on social media. It does mean using what we have, using our talents and our time and our treasure, everything that we have to worship and serve God in whatever way we can. And sometimes that might be big and flashy, but most of the time it's going to be boring and ordinary. This is why I love Nicodemus. His life tells this beautiful story of the connection between generosity and integrity. It's a story of transformation, right? Dark to light, coming at night to this very public taking of Jesus' body. It's a story of belief and confidence growing over time. But a lot of the story is hidden. A lot of his story is unknown. A lot of his story was probably kind of boring and probably pretty challenging, right? Being a Pharisee and a disciple of Jesus at the same time. So probably more boring than we'd like to admit, but also more whole and less divided. Nicodemus, a person of integrity. Mother Teresa famously said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. I think that is a perfect summary to this integrity conversation. Small things with great love. The more we grow in this ability to do small things with great love, the more we will grow in generosity and the more whole and undivided we will become. I think a great example of this comes from Sarah Bessie. She's a wonderful author. If you have not read any of her books, I highly encourage you to go get some this afternoon and start reading. She is uh, funny and Canadian, which sometimes goes together. 
And she says this. She, this is a, a bit that she wrote a couple of years ago that, that has always resonated deeply with me. She says, now, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune to have to clean up wet Rice Krispies. But if not, I will offer this piece of advice. You cannot sweep them up. You cannot vacuum them up. You cannot wipe them up. You must pick them up one at a time, bit by bit, and only then can you wash the floor properly. All the parents said, amen. She says, I began to get angry as I picked up those Rice Krispies. Not at the tiny children who created the mess. Those messes can't be helped when one is tiny. They're part of the deal. But rather at the fact that this was my life. I muttered to myself under the table about how I was too smart for this, too creative for this. I'm meant to be a writer, not a maid. I bet C.S. Lewis never had to clean up cereal. It would be funny, she writes, if, it, if I hadn't actually believed the lie that I was too special, too holy, too smart, too good, too much altogether to pick up Rice Krispies in my own kitchen. My husband went through similar feelings when he left full-time vocational ministry and then found himself driving a white work van with a phone number on the side doing physical labor to pay our bills. In addition to the actual difficulty of the work itself, there was this ongoing internal monologue about how this wasn't good enough. This wasn't special enough. How he was supposed to be more or better. How this kind of work wasn't really contributing to the kingdom of God. How he was failing because he was here. We had been fed a steady diet for years that we were meant to change the worlds, to be heroes, to be different from everyone else. To be radical. Which of us, she says, when presented with ordinary versus radical, wouldn't choose the latter? Wouldn't choose wanting to be special or different? There's a bird in here. <laughs> wow. The Holy Spirit. This is great. This is great. Hang with me. Here was the revelation for us, she says. God is with us in the ordinary. God is present in the ordinary and the regular and the uncelebrated in a way that I never could have fathomed when I thought that God's best was only either on a stage or a mountaintop or somewhere far away. We would have missed it. We would have missed it. We would have missed the truth that God loves the whole world and that our ordinary, everyday, walking around lives are rich with meaning, that there is value in picking up Rice Krispies and typing in a cubicle and working from 8 to 5 and driving a delivery van and cooking supper and picking up kids from daycare. When your standing before God is stripped of being interesting or powerful or obvious or better than when your place in the kingdom of God becomes ordinary and pedestrian, that's when you begin to finally receive the love of Christ as the free and wild and generous gift of abundance that it has been all along. 
And then you begin to see that love showing up in the craziest and most ordinary of places. The point isn't being radical or a world changer. The point is following Jesus. If there is a big idea for this conversation, it's this. It's not being radical or a world changer. The point is following Jesus. And here's how she ends. She says, God wasn't waiting for me in an orphanage or a book deal or in a position of power and influence. God was always under the kitchen table cleaning up Rice Krispies. Now, the goal this morning, as we finish this conversation, the goal here is not to be a wet blanket on your dreams and aspirations. If you have big aspirations and dreams, I hope actually that's the opposite, that this conversation has stoked those fires, right? has given you some things to think and to dream about, how you can use your time and your treasure and your talents to serve and worship God. But here's the thing, accomplishing a big dream is always the culmination of a thousand small things done faithfully and with great integrity. Accomplishing a big dream is always the culmination of a thousand small things done faithfully and with great integrity. Now what we wanted to do this morning is to close our time uh, just with a little bit more space to reflect, some space to take communion as we do every time we gather on a Sunday morning, but also space to pray. So we're going to have some folks on either side of the theater uh, available to pray with you as we close our time in worship, as we take communion together, and, and as we reflect not just on, uh, on today and Nicodemus and his story, but really on this bigger conversation that we've been having around this idea of integrity. Do you need, do you need to be generous with your time? Right? Do you need to give your time as an act of love? Remember, one of the tangible responses there was to get involved in a neighborhood community. What does it look like for you to get into community, to give your time to, to people? Do you need to be more generous with your treasure? Right, and this was the invitation to, to financial generosity. Do you need to give your talents as an act of love, this invitation to serve both inside and outside of defense are for you? Again, to worship, to pray with someone if you would like to do that, to pray by yourself if that's more helpful, to come to the table and to take communion when you are ready. I'll invite the band to come up. And those of you who are uh, going to be available for prayer, if you, you can head over to uh, one of the sides of the theater. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you, you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, his death and his resurrection, the good news that we celebrate in this moment called communion. So again, this moment uh, that we have here to close our gathering today, a gift to you. Use it how you, how you need. 
You, you can sit, you can pray, you can pray with someone else. You can come and take the elements and remember what Jesus has done for us. We'll just take the next few moments to, to do that and then I'll come back here in a, in a little bit to close our time. But again, may this be a moment for you to be with God, to process a little bit and to respond in whatever way you need to respond.